And we are live. <laughs> Let me just check. Yep, confirmed. We are live. And it is just after 8.30 on Thursday, the 29th of October. Thank you very much for joining me here in the bowels of the palatial fat cave, deeply entrenched below prestigious Chateau Schittsville above stately Chateau Schittsville. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Hit me up on the website. Now, the purpose of being here, of course, is so that you can ask me anything in the chat and I can see the chat is already bombarded with questions from you. So we'll get right into that in uh, just a second. And uh, look, Ask me anything. That's, of course, no guarantee that I'm going to answer everything. They're not the same thing, clearly, but uh, I'll have a crack at most things. And the delightful thing about this is that I can't really fillet the questions before I read them out. So that's a whole new level of complexity, isn't it? So we might only get halfway or even less through some of your questions slash comments. I just wanted to share with you um, a little bit of automotive news just to whet your appetite about this and that that's been uh, happening. And uh, of course, there is this endless feed of news that darkens my desk. Uh, yesterday, for example, Genesis Motors Australia announced that Michael Clark, the cricketing great, was uh, uh, enshrined as a new Genesis ambassador. And I guess the question I've got for you on that is, does that make any difference? Do ambassadors really help when it comes to getting you across the line on a new car? Would you buy a vehicle because it was endorsed by, I don't know, Victoria Beckham's arse or something, you know, dignified of that nature? It might, uh, it might make me interested to hear the backstory, but I'm not sure I would buy a vehicle on the basis of some ambassadorship. Anyway, Michael Clark is there busily ambassadoring, if that's a verb, for Genesis. Um, the new Jaguar E-Pace was announced, dynamic and connected, <gasps> miracle cure for insomnia. Nissan always trying to garner the attention of the media. Nissan's Dark Knight Rises, Midnight Edition delivers unique style, presence and personality to the Wait for it. Nissan Qashqai. I'm thinking Batman. Over here, I'm thinking Batman, you know. Nissan Qashqai. I'm not seeing it. Anyway, I don't care how much black they can put on a Qashqai. I'm not seeing Batman. Don't know what you think there. Uh, Ford Australia says, All new Ford Escape achieves five-star ANCAP rating, features comprehensive suite of driver-assist technologies, blah, blah, blah. What a pity. I can't do that with the Mustang. I don't know why. Genesis Preview's second SUV, the GV70. I've not seen anything about the GV70, but I have climbed all over the GV80, and that is a fairly compelling car, I'd have to say. And they do seem to be somewhat focused at Genesis on looking after customers, which would be a pleasant departure from the likes of Mercedes-Benz, I'd suggest. And finally, sick bag at the ready, like, Fair warning, if you've got a weak stomach, you might want to la-la-la-la-la-la-la right now because Jaguar reflects on pandemic and pledges to create positive change. 29 October 2020, 
Whiteley UK Jaguar designers have taken time to reflect on their experiences of the global pandemic in a series of films which look ahead with a positive mindset. I'm not going to be watching any of those films. What of value could possibly be garnered from some designer at Jaguar reflecting on the global pandemic? I'm not seeing it as a concept for a compelling cinema. (laughs) I'm not seeing it. But anyway, this is why you should pay attention at school and certainly never become a journalist because you might be bombarded by things of this nature. I'll have to spray myself liberally with 2020 FO at the conclusion of this broadcast and I'm not sure even this double strength formulation will have any effect at all on the uh, rough nausea that I'm sensing as a result of Jaguar designers reflecting on the pandemic. I mean, there are limits, am I right? Anyway, now, let's throw it over to you, and I am just randomly throwing the dart into the board at A-Team Dev. Hi, John. I heard Honda Australia is moving to an agency model in June of 2021. What does an agency model mean to new car prices, availability, servicing and support here in Australia? Okay, what this means is basically that the conventional dealership model, which you are familiar with, is going to be yanked out from under the feet of Honda customers. And essentially, dealers that remain, and there won't be nearly as many Honda dealers, but the dealers that remain will not own their stock. They'll basically just be a vending machine for Honda Central. Okay, And this means a couple of interesting things. I don't think there'll be any negotiation on the price. And of course, this is happening because it's reasonably functional. I I don't know about successful, but it's functional across the ditch in Sheep Shagistan. And they're doing it because the profitability, or I should say the non-profitability of Honda Australia has been of significant concern to the board over in Japan, the board of Honda. Like, Honda's not making any money. They're not kicking any goals. And one of the reasons is simply that they dropped the ball during the global financial crisis and they never picked it back up. They failed to innovate. Their product range is uncompetitive and uninspiring and they are trading off their reputation from the 1990s. And I have no sympathy for Honda. They're a huge organisation. They have the resources to pick the ball back up. They've got the runs on the board technically. We're talking about the inventor of VTech, okay, and the design and constructor of all of those really rip-snorting cars that I so enjoyed driving in the 90s. Anything Type R, Type R Integra. Uh, The CRX was an awesome little fun machine, you know, Type R Civics. All of these things were just Such halo cars for the brand and the S2000. What a fantastic VTEC execution there. Like uh, an MX-5 of the same era on steroids, right? And that business with the uh, gearbox where you could... uh, The VTEC mode went from 6,000 to 9,000 and every gear in the six-speed gearbox was worked out so that you could upshift or downshift and always be within six to 9,000. So you could drive continuously up it for the rent in VTEC mode, and it was sensational. And then the GFC hit, and they pulled all the budget out of R&D, and they failed to innovate, and they forgot how to make exciting cars, and basically they dropped the ball. And look at the product range now, and look at the underlying engineering, the state of play for most of those engines, the 
uninspiring CVTs. Is it any wonder that they're not making any money here in Australia? I mean, anyway, what's going to happen is this agency model might sink or it might swim. At the moment, I rate Honda as a don't buy in Australia because look what happened to the resale value of Holden's, okay? The same thing could easily transpire with Honda. Like this is this is when they sit you down and they say, it's terminal, but we've got this treatment we're not really sure about. It might work and it might buy you some time and hey, you might even go into remission. This agency model is that for Honda. So it's sink or swim, but I'm suggesting that as a risk management thing perhaps you should just hold off and see whether the brand has uh, neutral buoyancy into the future or whether it's like straight down like the Kursk in whatever it was 1984 or something so let us move on I hope that helps with Honda I uh, don't want you to be overly concerned if you do buy a Honda or if you own one you're kind of locked in but it's been looking fairly grim for Honda anyway. GHS 77, the shirt dude who's always on at me about the shirt, okay? Predictably enough, Mr. 77 says, nice gay t-shirt, John. Now, we've had this chat. I don't see how a t-shirt can be gay, okay? I get that there is a gay stereotype and I'm not going anywhere down the rabbit hole of value judgment on stereotypes and all of this stuff. But there is a gay stereotype that has been exploited in popular culture the whole time. And I'm not sure this fine Nike camouflage T-shirt conforms to that stereotype. So we disagree, Mr. 77. Um, from the Nike store, yeah, well spotted. I think it's there. Yeah, it's there. Okay, uh, why are you not wearing the paddle pop and watermelon shirt anymore? Um, thank you for the recognition last week. Very loyal viewer I am. Yes, I know you are. But there's, but there's no need to talk like Yoda. <laughs> Very loyal viewer I am. <laughs> I know that, okay. And I'm amazed that there is a memory of the shirts, right? The watermelon shirt, the paddle pop shirt. I'll wear the watermelon shirt next Thursday. Promise. Cross my... Whatever, hope to die, you know. Uh, Rayon Abdul now, thoughts, oh, hang on, I hate it where it jumps around like that. I was right there with Mr. Abdul and now I've lost all temporal reference. Oh, here he is. Okay. Thoughts on the upcoming smart stream engines from Hyundai. Are they worth the upgrade or just fancy marketing? Now, I think smart stream is a thing and the thing is variable valve duration so this has got the potential to change the operational characteristics of the engine in a similar way to variable valve timing you know if you can control the lift and duration of the valves then you can uh, increase the rev range where the engines are efficient you can also make them more powerful over a greater rev range which is kind of a flip side of the same thing so there is a, a very clever mechanism that underpins that variable valve train thing and if you look at Jason Fenske's channel engineering explained he's got a, the world's best sit down beer garden engineering sort of um a description of how that smart stream variable valve duration thing works. And I did think about reinventing the wheel there, but 
He's basically done an ace job. So just look for Engineering Explained and Hyundai Variable Valve Duration Smart Stream. And it will come up. Jason's extremely popular on YouTube. He's a bit of a hero of mine. And uh, also another mechanical engineer, so there's nothing wrong with that. Does a great job. And the explanation there is a really good thing. So there's that. MQ now says, Could you explain the two-motor planetary power split transmission of Toyota Ford hybrids? No. I could look into it, but this is one of those times where I have to fall on my sword and say, I really don't know that in granular detail. But if I can bring it to mind during the week, I will look into it and try and get back to you, MQ. But I am old, like I'm nearly the dinosaurs old, okay? So there's no guarantee that anything that pumps itself in at 8.42.25 on a Thursday evening is going to remain existent at, you know, 8.42.25 tomorrow morning, for example. So I will try, but no promises, dude. Sorry about that. Now, let us move on again. Bob778 underscore. It amazes me that there were 777 underscores named Bob, and uh, you had to pick the 778th one, Bob, of necessity. I, I don't know. On the GR Yaris, how crazy do you think we are for buying a car none of us have even sat in or have any real info of what is actually included in the car, just going on faith that it will be epic? Well, that's not the same as buying um, AMG Mercedes-Benz, is it? We're talking the decimal point hopping uh, all over the shop here. So the Yaris, although it's not a trivial purchase i'm sure it will be somewhat epic and it just remains to be seen whether toyota can carry that off with any great authenticity but if you have locked yourself in bob then you better bank on it being epic and if not then just open your wallet and modify the crap out of it until it is suitably epic to suit your needs mate um, obviously these sort of cars are just prick teasers for the brand really that's why they exist it's so that toyota can sort of chip away at the impression that it is really not that exciting anymore you know and there is a lot of that going around for toyota and they really should break the mold but they've been let me be frank spectacularly unsuccessful at doing that for 20 something years now there's been very few exciting Toyotas in all of that time. They've done a mean line in hybrids. They've been very successful at hybrids. They've turned the Prius into the Coca-Cola of hybrids. And then they've metastasized hybrid technology through the uh, ranks, haven't they? And when you look at the RAV4 hybrid, I think community demand, you know, commercial demand around the world for that car has really just exploded and surprised them. And that's why there's been such a problem supplying the bloody thing for months now. So there's that, Bob. I don't think you're too crazy, mate. I just think it is a bit of a punt and you'll likely be satisfied with the car. Now, Brett Bentley says, John, what's the best vehicle to tow a 2.5 ton caravan and seriously travel around Australia? Say a five year trip some rough roads and beach. A two and a half ton aluminium acoustically transparent receptacle for poop where you can take a dump about that far from the dining room table for five years. Yes. And you can take your effluent from dingo piss flat to dingo piss flat, repeat, for five. That's only... 2,000 odd days, isn't it? Yes. Who doesn't want to do that? They have these things now, dude. They're called hotels, okay? They're awesome. 
the dining room and the poop are separated by at sometimes floors, actual, you know, it, there's certainly not an arm's length thing, in, not at any of the hotels I've been in anyway. So there's that. And the cost of these caravans, mate, come on. You're talking about $80,000 for a decent caravan. And do you know how many five-star evenings you can spend in a resort with, you know, all the mod cons like a flushing toilet way over there? Anyway, I'd suggest two and a half tons is kind of where that you'd want to be the sweet spot for a ute like a Triton or, uh, you know, a BT-50, a She-Max or a, uh, a, you know, any of the D-Max, any of those Hilux, any of those utes would be fine. Pajero Sport would be fine. I think it's hard to justify Land Cruiser 200 because hideously expensive, although the resale value on Toyota four-wheel drives is just out of proportion with reality, I think. So there's that. Look. I wouldn't go heavier than two and a half tons fully loaded, but any of those vehicles, any of the decent utes, four by fours if you want to do the beach, obviously, but you could get away with uh, something like a four by two high rider if you didn't want to do any proper off-roading. You know, if you just wanted to drive down a rough dirt road, you can do that in a four by two and save yourself considerable money. The towing proposition, kind of the same. Uh, you don't need four by four to tow. And in fact, on sealed roads and on good dirt roads, you can't really engage four wheel drive in anything except you can do it in Land Cruiser, which is permanent four wheel drive. You can do it in Triton because you can engage 4H with a centered if unlocked. Ditto Pajero Sport. Most of the other utes, though, they are not constant four-wheel drive, so you can't use 4H on a high-traction surface. Um, basically depends on the budget, mate, but utes are looking good for that sort of thing. I would, however, suggest that utes are not all that great for the security of your gear when you're away from the vehicle. You could get a roll-top tonneau that locks, obviously, but then you're kind of height-limited in the luggage department. And uh, the other thing I'd also suggest is you want your survival stuff with you in the vehicle. So a wagon or a ute, you want all of that stuff with you in case you decouple the van and go adventuring and have a problem. So that's a pro tip there for that kind of stuff. So two and a half tons, don't go heavier than that because trailers like caravans right they are intrinsically unstable in pitch like forward and backward head forward head back like that they're intrinsically unstable in pitch and they're intrinsically unstable in yaw as well and aerodynamics affects the yaw response and braking and divots in the road affects the pitch obviously and you don't want the tail wagging the dog and this is the real risk with heavy vans okay so i'd suggest most of those vehicles will do okay at two and a half tons, but you've got to watch the gross vehicle mass and you've got to remember that the tow ball download is part of the gross vehicle mass for whatever vehicle's doing the towing and also the gross combination mass, which kind of means in vehicles like utes, you generally can't put the maximum payload in the ute and then also tow at the maximum tow capacity because you will burn the gross combination mass, which is the limit of the fully loaded combination. Okay, so you've got to bear in mind all of those things. Crunch the numbers before you buy the van or the vehicle. You know, just do it like fantasy foot football, okay? You just get the numbers on the van, you get the numbers on the vehicle, you see if they meet, and then if they don't, it doesn't cost you thousands to kind of 
unfuck your error. Okay, so do all of that. You should be right. Five years is a hell of a long time, though. There's a lot of dingo piss out there, I know, but it might get old, just saying. And that acoustic transparency, the proximity to the dining table, <laughs> yes, bring it on. Now, uh, unpronounceable1234 says, Hi, John, I've seen the late model grey imported Japanese people movers on the streets recently. Do you reckon they are worth considering alongside what's available officially on the Aussie market? Well, yeah, I do, mainly because carnivals and things of this nature, if you want a carnival platinum, that's going to cost you 65 grand. 65 grand is a lot of hoot, and there's... Nissan L Grands and Toyota, whatever they call those things, you know, that we've never seen here for the JDM um, sort of set. And they are much more reasonably priced. And I guess the risk you run there is Toyota dealers and Nissan dealers, whoever, they generally hate you because their job is to sell brand new cars from a factory out of Japan, okay? And what you bought is not one of them. So you've basically undermined their profit by buying that vehicle. And it could be very difficult for you to get support from them in terms of software upgrades and parts. But thankfully, uh, due to the internet, I think you'd probably do okay on the parts. And you'd probably find a specialist. If you live in a major capital city, you'd probably find a specialist who can do the mad diagnosis voodoo for you. Right? So... I think you'd probably save some money, but it is going to be potentially more of a pain in the ass if you have a problem with that vehicle down the track, mate. So that's what I'd say about that. Now, Keith Ibbotson here says, trailers are unstable when attached to a modified vehicle. No, they're unstable all the time. They're intrinsically unstable in pitch and yaw. It's completely the opposite of a semi-trailer, for example, which has wheels right at the back and is connected to a heavy prime mover at the front. Most of the weight is centralised on the axle, and this makes the trailer intrinsically unstable in pitch and yaw, right? Pretty stable in roll, but not pitch and yaw. That's just how they are. Keith goes on and says, a truck is designed to take the weight. Yeah, it is. But the trailer that a truck tows is also completely different. Like the prime mover is carrying half of the weight of the trailer. And you can't do that with the kinds of trailers you tow conventionally with a four-wheel drive because let's say you've got a three-and-a-half-ton acoustically transparent shitter and you're taking it across Australia and it's configured in the manner of a semi-trailer. You'd have about 1,750 kilos on the back wheels, i.e. half of the weight, and you'd have 1,750 kilos right over the front, i.e., on top of the back axle of the vehicle doing the towing, right? And the vehicles doing the towing in this context are just simply not designed to take that level of weight. And even with a rigid truck, like a Pantech or something, the the weight distribution is kind of the same, okay? The prime mover end of it, you know, is designed to take roughly half of the weight or slightly more in the case of a rigid truck because engine plus half the weight all over the front like that, it's a serious load up the front. And these utes that we are so in love with in Australia and vehicles like Land Cruisers and Patrols and things of that nature, they're just un unable to bear that kind of load, which is why we have these dodgy trailers that are so unstable, which is fine if it's a box trailer on the way to the friggin' tip or something, 
or a two-ton vehicle towing a two-ton trailer. But when you start to get an intrinsically unstable trailer weighing three and a half tonnes in in the back of a vehicle doing the towing, which might weigh 1,900 kilos, even though that's allowed, that's not the same as being a good idea, dude, right? In my view, it's a very bad idea. And if you want to tow these heavy loads, like three and a half tonnes, the thing to do is buy a truck that is capable of towing that kind of trailer, okay? Because five years doing that, something's going to go wrong, you know? 12 months, the big lap of Australia. You only have to have the worst case scenario occur once when you're towing a trailer like that. And when it starts to push you off the road, guaranteed, you are going to get to a tipping point in this pendulum equation, which is always how it happens, right? There's this sort of secondary pendulum if this is the the heavy trailer we'll use the big king dick for the heavy trailer and the little king dick the lightweight king dick and they do this we're looking at it from the top right they tend to do this and then we get to a point where the heavy trailer goes like this and it drags the prime moving vehicle like that and they both roll over and then everything's up for grabs right that's just how that works trailers are okay to tow as long as you do it conservatively and in my view three and a half tons just not conservative so let us move on we've got uh vijay kobal gopal says can you give me some suggestion to reduce the road nice i think he means noise spellcheck.com in my nx 2015 pajero why did Mitsubishi design such a good SUV with no consideration to noise? A lot of monocoque SUVs are a lot quieter. Well, that car is pretty old, Vijay. It just is. So not the same attention was probably paid to what they call NVH suppression or attenuation. NVH being noise, vibration and harshness in the automotive game. And I would suggest that it might be as simple as getting additional carpet okay, with thicker underlay and going over the cargo bay. That might be a start. Um, you could carry some, you could maybe put a, I remember when I, oh, this is such a confession. I used to own a Land Rover Defender. Don't judge me, okay? I'm over it now. I've been sober for many years, for 20-something years, but I did used to own one and it was very noisy. And then I got a draw system put in the back of it for off-road fun you know to put recovery gear in so it wouldn't become a projectile if i parked on the roof one day and it shut the thing right up mainly because there was just this big layer of acoustic insulation over the whole back end which was very poorly to not at all insulated from noise coming through the rear wheel arches and things like that so you might be able to just shut it up a bit by putting thicker better quality carpet in it but Essentially, NVH engineering is a ground-up thing where it's very advanced and they take a lot of measurements of all kinds of noise and vibration spectra and then they do fundamental design things to try and attenuate that noise and you're not really in a position to do that. So either live with it, turn the stereo up or, you know, get some thicker carpet and see how you go, mate. Good luck with that. Herbal Powered. Now, I wonder what that's a reference to. Herbal Powered says John Deere won't release their intellectual property software just as Microsoft reveal their source code. Won't reveal their source code. Yeah, I'm, 
I don't really understand why you would want their intellectual property. I understand why you might want some information about how to service the vehicle or what grade of oil or things of that nature. But, you know, as for intellectual property, try contacting a car company and asking them, you know, what's the what's the centre of mass of a particular car or where's the roll centre located on my car? You know, forget it. They absolutely, in Australia, they're only import operations anyway. They won't know, but head office won't tell them if you convince somebody to make that inquiry for you. You know, you'll just be banging your head against a brick wall until it gets painful enough and you'll uh, learn how to stop. Now, let's talk to Keith Ibbotson here. Says a trailer on a car, the weight is at the back of axle prime movers have weight at the front of the rear axle keeping weight on the prime mover more central and same on the trailer i drive big rigs and trucks yeah absolutely they do the prime mover bears about half of the weight of the trailer that it's towing and the back axle of the trailer bears about the other half and the prime mover is obviously quite heavy in its own right and when you look at where the trailer is mounted to the prime mover it's over the centre of that rear axle group on the prime mover, hence the excellent weight distribution and also the wheel location giving rise in both cases to much more profoundly better your stability and pitch stability for the trailer on a semi-trailer. And obviously there are limits. You can have horrible jackknifing incidents with semi-trailers if things go horribly wrong. But in general, they are much more controlled. And the other thing is, elephant in the room to drive a prime mover you have to have substantial experience right and extra training and all of that stuff you don't just go on yesterday i was a stop go man today i will drive a b double to melbourne or something it doesn't work like that you know and what gobsmacks me fair income gobsmacks me is that you could drive a yaris you could drive every yaris that was released throughout your working career and then when you get a bit grey or a bit, you know, bereft of hair like yours truly and you retire and you go to the great aluminium shitted towing environment in the sky or something, you know, you you retire and you go off, you can buy yourself a 200 series and a three and a half ton trailer with no, no additional training and just head out on the road and I just think that's insane. I don't think you need additional training to um, take a box trailer to the tip. But when you're starting to tow something heavy a long distance at high speed, don't you think some additional training might pay off? And if this were industry instead of just the roads in Australia, would there not be an occupational health and safety dimension to that? I mean, we wouldn't just let employees do that, would we? We'd train them. We'd have a procedure wouldn't we, you know? So there's kind of that. I'd also suggest you'd want to teach yourself how to reverse a trailer before you need to do it under pressure. And the pro tip there is just go somewhere where there's a consequence-free environment, like a big single-level parking lot, open-air, ground-level parking lot with nothing going on, and get a couple of witches' hats and just back up between them in a straight line and if you start seeing, use the mirrors, okay, or the side mirrors, not the central one. And when you start seeing too much trailer in one mirror, that's the hand that goes down, okay? Too much trailer on the right side, right hand goes down. Pushes the right hand side of the vehicle out, which pushes 
the the trailer back in line. So equal parts. And then when you can reverse in a straight line, practice, you know, reversing around a corner and things of that nature. It's it's most therapeutic. It's a skill everybody should have. I don't know why it's illegal for learners to do this, but apparently it is. I was um, having a discussion with a colleague the other day and he was telling me that and I'm just shaking my head going, if dad knows how to back a trailer and kid is learning and learners are statistically one of the safest groups of drivers on the roads, why would you not allow them to learn this valuable skill so that experienced hand in the passenger seat can give young knucklehead the right training so that they don't blow it big time the first time they give it a crack? Love to know what you think about that. Now, we'll get back into some more of these questions. They are just uh, rocketing in and I'm just, you know, it's very difficult to fill at them and talk to you at the same time. So sorry if I appear to be a gibbering idiot for time to turn from time to time. It's just blood supply and neurons and not enough, you know. Uh, Dave Mann says, very spot on with towing certification. Unfortunately, it's only an optional course that is available. I'm sure you could find someone like in the aftermarket training uh, kind of area who could who could absolutely help you and learn uh, learn to tow and I'd, I'd suggest very very strongly that if you were you know thinking about going on this big adventure and you hadn't done much towing in the past I would I would get someone to do that now speaking of which I'm just going to look up the right dude who might be able to help I'm not actually sure on this but um, this is a good opportunity for me to give a mate a plug anyway. Um, I'm just going to look for Stewie. Yeah, okay. So here we go. Stuart Nichols is a guy I've known for some time, and I was talking to him um I was talking to him on the phone. He's a driver trainer, basically, and he's been doing it tough in COVID-19. And uh, I'd suggest that if Stuart doesn't know how to do that kind of stuff, he would know someone who was doing that kind of stuff because he's been in that game for years. And he's he's now out on his own. The website is all the W's, steersafely.com.au. So steersafely.com.au. And his name is Stuart Nichols. He's a good bloke. I've known him for many years now. We're talking on the phone about exactly how many years and it's like more than 10, so very scary. But uh, Stuart's a really good driver trainer. And if you don't need specifically towing advice, I'd suggest that you need advanced driver training, right? I'd love to count the number of times that driver training has saved my neck or someone else's. I mean, very memorably, I was driving home. I was a bit tired because I'd been on the radio for a few hours and it, it was the exactly the wrong conditions. Like it had just started to sprinkle a little bit. The roads were just starting to get damp, so maximally slippery, and the sun was setting, okay? And there was this sort of pedestrian crossing controlled by traffic lights and I was on a, a six-lane arterial road in the lane closest to the centre, okay? Nowhere to go, dense traffic, pedestrian crossing coming up doing about 60 so i see these people no traffic coming the other way i see these people cross the road against the red the red walkie traffic light right so they're breaking the law but they stop in the center island okay so that's not a danger to me but my spider sense kind of went like this and would you know it i hadn't seen a kid who had also followed these grown-ups out he, he had a bike with him, and it was quite dark at the time and plenty of other stuff was going on. 
But he didn't stop when they stopped and he came out and I was so close to hitting him. And the only reason I didn't was a thousand driver training courses said to me, this looks a bit iffy. So I took my foot off the brakes and I off the throttle and I had already covered the brake pedal with my left foot, you know. And as soon as I saw the kid, I just went in a full tilt emergency stop mode and the bonnet of the car I was driving sort of was this far away from the kid when uh, when the scenery stopped moving. There was a real heart-in-the-mouth thing, right? Because once you've got your foot jammed on the brakes and the hardware is ABS activation and it's all physics, you can't do anything. I couldn't steer anywhere. I had a car next to me. So if physics didn't work, I was going to kill this kid. And it being his fault or his stupidity wasn't going to cut it from an ethics point of view as far as I was concerned. So, you know, to me, that is that is the poster state. That, that, that is like a billboard up in lights every time I think about it that says advanced driver training saves lives, all right? So anyway, Stuart Nichols is a mate of mine and I don't get anything out of recommending him, but his uh, business is steersafely.com.au and he's trying to get it off the ground in this post- nearly post-pandemic world, right? So if you need that driver training, you might want to just go to steersafely.com.au and look Stuart up or just go to their website and have a look at the courses they offer anyway. And, you know, it might save your life, but it also might save someone else's. And that's a victory for you, right? Because even if you don't have any ethical or moral dimension in your head, do you have any concept of what happens to you if you kill somebody on the road? The number of uh, court cases, statements, interviews, you'll probably be arrested. You know, it's really confronting. Okay, and that's why we all need to drive, in my view, far more cohesively, like we're all in it together. Because there is a massive ethical dimension to this, but there's also personal consequences, even if you're in the right ultimately, and somebody else dies and you're part of it, okay? So the the licensing system and the driving that you do daily does not prepare you for these kinds of emergencies. And it's not the kind of stuff that you think. It's not like learning how to hang the tail out or learning how to do handbrake turns and head throws and counterterrorism and that stuff, although that is epic fun. Probably not that useful, okay? Learning how to stop being situationally aware, eliminating the blind spots, getting some finesse involved in the controls, taking preemptive action. See, of all of the things you can do to cut your stopping distance in an emergency, the number one thing is realize early that something is up and get your foot on the brake, okay? If you can slash one second by doing that early at 60 k's an hour, that is 17 metres, right, of road that you don't travel over during an emergency stop because you stop here, not 17 metres down here. No other kick-ass driving technique can do that. It's all about observation and reaction. And this is just, driving is just like being mugged, okay, because when you are the victim of a mugging, okay, the mugger has a plan, you know, They've already got the plan. They're typically ambush predators. You've gone and stupidly, you know, serendipitously for them, but stupidly for you, stood on their X. You might be getting in your car when you're particularly vulnerable getting in a car, right? But you're in an OODA loop, right? Like observe, orient, decide and act. 
the dude who's mugging you is already at act and you're at observe and then you've got to orient decide what to do and then act you know get an ang- get make an angle on your opponent if you're being mugged and operate you know tactically like that but if you're driving you're in this OODA loop all the time because action is taking place down here and you're so it's already happening right kids already there in the center of the road about to step in front of you you're still at observe you've got to cross the bridge of orientation and decision and action right so you're always three steps behind what's happening in front and that's why advanced driver training is such a big deal it's why it can save so so many lives and it shits me when people say that it's worthless or why do I need that and things of that nature because there's no reporting system for crashes that are avoided. There's no ledger where that kid, his timeline goes on, you know. He's probably an adult now, right? His timeline would have stopped that day if a different driver with no training had been in that situation and I don't want to pat on the back for it. I just want to use it as an advertisement for you know driver training actually saving lives and being a worthwhile skill because driving is something that most of us do most days and emergencies can happen at any time and i would not get on a commercial jet aircraft or into a helicopter if the pilot had not practiced endlessly engine failure on the ground roll right or if the pilot of a helicopter had not endlessly practiced auto rotation landings and isn't driving isn't flying the aircraft going well if the engine goes out i'm auto rotating down there right if i wouldn't get into a a helicopter unless the pilot was doing that so we all get into cars with drivers who aren't doing that and i think that is an epic fail love to know what you think about that in the chat if you've got a view if if you've had a situation where you know you've had some training and it really has helped it's uh, saved your neck or somebody else's uh, let me know because it certainly saved my neck more than once christopher lust says hi john the market for a new car budget 35 grand drive away how do you think the imminent hyundai kona upgrade new features 40 millimeters longer will stack up against the current leading small suv crop well i sort of think that Kona, uh, Seltos, and uh, maybe CX-3, if you want something more compact, doesn't sound like you do, um, they're already the leading small SUV crop, in my view, you know, so depends what you want aesthetically. Kona's kind of polarizing, it's pretty funky, whereas Seltos, to me, seems more conservative. CX-3 is a bit small, like it's based on the Mazda 2 platform, so if you want a really compact SUV two thumbs up but you know if you don't if you want something a bit bigger what i'd what i suggest about hyundai kia most other car makers mazda whatever toyota they don't make cars worse generally with each iteration of the model that's not in the design brief okay in fact that's an epic fail the next model iteration has to be better it just has to be better. That's the brief. It's got to be slightly bigger. It's got to be slightly more powerful. Or they've got to have a powertrain story to tell. They've got to have an equipment story to tell, right? They've got to say it's got these additional features. It's got this additional efficiency, performance, whatever. It's got this additional space. It's got whatever, okay? So I'd suggest that New Kona is going to be old Kona plus 7 to 10% worth of additional goodies. It's in a competitive segment, so they won't be in a position where they can afford to pump the price up too much, 
right? Because price sensitivity is a thing. And if they add, let's say, five grand to the Highlander, they will lose a proportional number of sales, especially if the price of Seltos does not change and the price of CX3 does not change and the price of Dark Knight Cash Guy or something does not change, they will lose sales as a consequence. So they're between a rock and a hard place competitively and they got to build more features in. So it's going to be better. The question is how much better, but really it's going to be more of the same plus 7 to 10%, mate. That's that's generally how the whole car industry rolls. And it's also why they've got to keep adding these new models in the small end of the pool. Like, do you remember in the 70s, 80s and 90s when the Toyota Corolla was actually a relatively small car? I certainly do. And then it got incrementally bigger with every iteration of the model. It got bigger, it got a bigger engine, got more space, got more power, got more features. And all of a sudden, there's a hole in the market. It's a Yaris-sized hole. And that's why we've got Yaris. And same thing with all the other car manufacturers, right? They got to, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. They get the middle-aged middle spread going on. And then they got to introduce just, you know, a smaller car. So it's going to be that. Uh, now let's talk to Steve Simons, who says, I greatly appreciate your review of the 17 Sportage. I purchased a new 19 EX and love it. You sold me and I'm glad. Well, Sport, oh, well, I'm glad that my review got you across the line, Steve. But uh, Sportage is a good car. You know, it's pretty old in the model lineup now. And I'm inferring that because the Tucson and the Sportage are kind of twins under the skin. Tucson's going to be a mid-year 2021 thing for that new Tucson that I've already done the sneak peek of. And that means Sportage is probably going to be quarter three or quarter four of 2021 for a all-new model, all right? And uh, I'd suggest it's going to be a good thing as well. But the main thing is I'm glad, uh, Steve, that you're happy with your Sportage because it's really easy to buy a car that you fall in love with, like Let's say minis. I think minis are a classic for this. You, As a middle-aged dude who's watched the original Italian job with Michael Caine in it, when I was at school, I guess, about 20,000 times, it's easy to fall in love with the mini. I drove a few original Cooper S's and uh, played around with them, and they were unreliable dogs. But I tell you what, 100, 100 plus Ks an hour into a bend in an original Cooper S with those little wheels, they were only about this big, um, your ass was only this far off the deck and it felt fast, you know? And it's easy to fall in love with the modern day interpretation of that, like the modern mini. And I've driven several modern minis and I get falling in love with them. But I kind of think that the novelty would wear off about three to six months in for many people. So that's something to guard against. Anyway, Steve, I'm glad you're happy with your Sportage, mate. I'm glad the review helped you make what is apparently the right choice for you. And that's kind of important. Now, let us talk to Ian Unpronounceable at this point, which would be quarter past nine on a Thursday evening. Ian Unpronounceable says, hi, John, what's your thoughts on Honda Australia and globally at the moment well i did that earlier in the live stream why weren't you here basically globally i think they're pretty sick and locally i think they're very sick they're moving to this agency model which if you go back after we finish the stream and retroactively play it you'll see my thoughts on that so 
Anyway, I think this is a gamble for them. They might survive, but they're certainly not going to shine unless they pull their thumbs out of the rear end of their dist- uh, the distal end of their digestive tracts and innovate like they were capable of in the 90s. I think that's the, the, the quick answer there. Andy Burnett, who is a regular a commenter on the program says Lexus UK are losing sales here due to a poor lineup of vehicles move to SUVs no hatchbacks or estate cars how do they fare in Australia and what's your view on this well Andy Lexus is interesting to me because the move to SUVs is here as well although here in Australia we love SUVs I mean we love SUVs almost as much as we love utes and so that's probably a good move for them but Lexus has dependable traction in Australia they have a reputation for extremely good customer support but Lexus sells about 9,000 vehicles a year from memory, and that's up against the premium German car makers on about 30,000. So they're really not chipping away that hard. So when you say losing sales in the UK, I'm not sure what proportion of sales of the premium German cars uh, Lexus eats. So I can, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure here it's pretty small potatoes. You know, in the UK, it might be bigger, so they might be losing comparatively more sales, but I'm not so sure. I'm in the dark there, mate, so sorry I can't help you too much more, but the the move to SUVs is certainly on here with their product lineup in Australia as well. Peter Siperky says, these podcasts are awesome, John. Thank you, Peter. I'm glad you like them. It's really just me, verbal diarrhea for an hour and a half, so each to their own. I'm pretty sure they did that to the most recalcitrant prisoners in uh, Gitmo, you know, and after that, they just gave up OBL's home address, didn't they? Anyway, uh, Peter goes, uh, we need some more nuts in the comments feed, some flat earthers and Jesus botherers. Now, there's actually more of a case for Jesus than there is for the flat earth thing. Let's just, in, in the domain of epistemology, flat earth, I'm sorry, You know, Flat Earth is up there with denying the moon landing and climate change and things of that nature, okay? There is actually functionality in society, value, if you like, with the whole religion thing. Now, I know I am an atheist and I don't believe there's good evidence for God. There might have been a dude named Jesus. Pretty sure he wasn't actually the son of God. This is just a personal opinion. I don't want to upend you if you are deeply religious. I don't want to offend you, although I don't really care if you are offended. I think altogether too much emphasis is placed on the concept of offense in the current world. You know, free speech means the freedom to offend and the freedom to be offended and the freedom to have robust debates, right? Um, Jesus resurrection of jesus things of that nature i'm i'm with you peter on that but i actually think that there is at least some limited utility to religion in as much as if a few people go to church and sing some happy songs and clap a bit and all decide that what a great idea to be nice to one another then i don't have a problem with that it's just when they want to start shoving this whole belief or burn forever down my throat. I kind of have a problem with that. So anyway, that's just a personal position and I don't want to sway you one way or the other. You know, you could be as right as me on this or I could be as wrong as you on that if you're deeply religious. <laughs> so, so there's that. Steve Finn now. 
totally agree with advanced driver training. I can't count how many times I've saved myself, but more importantly, someone else. Insurance companies should offer a significant discount for advanced driver training. Here, friggin' here. They should. Absolutely, Steve. Hi from Hornsby. Well, snap. The Fat Cave is uh, is located in Hornsby. So it does seem like a lot of effort, doesn't it, to stream up to the cloud and then stream sort of two doors down or whatever, metaphorically. But I'm glad you're listening, mate. And always nice to hear from a former, uh, from a, from another Hornsby resident. So I hope we don't get trashed by too many more storms. It's been very wet lately. It's very unsettling in the driest continent on earth. Anywho, let us move on and we'll get down to some more seemingly good questions here. Peter Ozy says, hey, John, is there any rough estimation of an old ANCAP's five-star rating to the rating today, like a 2014 Falcon in today's rating? That's a very good question. And the short answer is no, but you can go to the technical reports and you can look at specific things like there hasn't been much change in the poll in the poll test when it was still an, an, a side-on poll test, a 90-degree side-on poll test. That was the case for many years. Not the case now, but if you're looking at, say, 2012 versus 2017 or something, it'll be a side-on poll test. So you can drill down into the poll test functionality and see how vehicles compare like that. You can look at the offset frontal crash test, which has been part of the ANCAP uh, regime for much longer even. That's done at 64 kilometres an hour with a 40% uh, offset. So it's really there to simulate a severe head-on collision, a clipping-type head-on collision where the vehicles do not meet absolutely head-on, but they sort of overlap like that, right? So... You can drill down into some of it, but they really rate things differently now. There are additional crash tests now. The pole test takes place at an angle rather than at 90 degrees, I guess because it might be more common to skid off the road and not hit the pole dead sideways, so there's that. And they also do a, a full width 50 kilometre an hour, I think it's 50 anyway, a frontal impact. So there's a raft of different tests now as well. So there's not really any way of magic formulaing five-star 2014 equals what in 2020 and this i'm highly critical of ancap's approach to their ratings because they they do make this process very difficult andy burnett is back now he says cheers john not sure of the actual bean count on lexus v bmw sales here in the uk but forums here seem to suggest a loss of sales to bmw i for one would buy a five series touring lexus equivalent in a heartbeat yeah it's interesting andy see I think BMW is very true to its core uh, identity statement, which is the ultimate driving machine. And when you look at the ultimate extensions of that in the inventory, like uh, the, the various the various good estates that really are Grand Tourers and any M car, okay, ultimate driving machine. And some of those five series estates, you know, ultimate family touring machine pretty sure you know lexus not so much when it comes to that although brilliant at reliability servicing support things of that nature bmw here is pretty good at support too audi mercedes-benz not so much in my experience and estimation but you know they're all very nice things <laughs> you know it, it's it's hard to go oh this is crap in a Lexus or a BMW. You know, the one thing I would say, however, is that they're all fairly crap 
at making cheap prestige cars. So, you know, you can buy an A-Class or something for or for yeah, 40 grand, 45 grand. It's pretty cheap and nasty. And so are all the cheapest uh, BMWs and Audis as well. You know, they just are. You don't get good value out of a prestige brand until you start spending real money, which in my estimation would be eighty dollars to $100,000. And then we're talking about a very nice car indeed that doesn't typically have a competitor in the mainstream segment. So there's that. Uh, we'll keep going for just a little bit longer. Cooper Anderson's been very kind with a small donation there. So thank you, Cooper. He said, I just wanted to say I'm glad I stumbled across this channel. I enjoy the more niche content to that of Mighty Car Mods. Quick shout out, though, to Marty and Moog, who are excellent dudes and very good at, in my view, what is such a mainstream Australian thing, which is just two knockabout dudes having fun with cars in their shed in their downtime you know and they've turned that into a friggin' art form and traveled all over the world and they're still just doing that so I, I get what you're saying Cooper and thank you very much for the compliment but no disrespect intended to Marty and Moog who I've met uh, once and they're just the same as you see them on their channel they're not banging it on that's exactly who they are and I have the utmost respect for them they're cool dudes um I'm asking what got you started in this industry and what was your journey? Okay, so at the risk of being, <laughs> I got accused of being automotive Socrates yesterday by one of you and I can't get this picture out of my head of real Socrates in his grave at 30,000 RPM just spinning like a turbocharger at that suggestion. But anyway, at the risk of being automotive Socrates on this, cars got into me shortly after I knew how to walk, right? And I've got this theory that you don't choose what you do. It chooses you, okay? And I just fell in love with cars. I've always been in love with cars. And I decided to become an engineer at university, mechanical engineer, because I thought it would get me a job in the car industry, designing cars, which is what I wanted to do. And here in Australia, not so much opportunity for that. And I sort of grew up pretty middle class, you know, so the international travel was not as accessible as it is, or, well, it was more accessible than it is today, but certainly not as accessible as it was this time last year, right? And the thought of going overseas to Germany or something and working on cars, you know, it, it really wasn't a, a tangible thing that I could appreciate. So I thought, well, if I went to university, hated it, hated mechanical engineering, so boring, so many intracranial bleeds solving friggin' differential equations and thermofluids one, two, and three, and all of these just really subjects that were quite intellectually intense. So did all that, got about halfway through and thought, this sucks, but finished, because otherwise what a waste of time. And then at the end of that, I was working for the railways, which is not the same thing as cars, if you're in love with cars. And the opportunity came up to start freelance writing, and I did that. And then I just fell into journalism. Like, I've never been trained as a journalist, but ultimately I worked in print. I've, been, I've worked on newspapers, and I've worked in uh, Wheels Magazine, Motor, and at radio and television. I was a host on Radio 2UE. Before that, I was their motoring expert for donkey's years. I was a current affairs tame motoring expert on um, 
uh, on Channel 9 and then I went to Channel 7 and I was Today Tonight's expert and nine, uh, 7 News' expert uh, on motoring. So I've been through the whole broadcast thing and then those mediums just went one day and got <laughs> pretty sick. And then I thought, no, nah, this online thing seems like it has potential and and I started doing that, and then I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if a journalist actually told the truth and said what they really think? Because there's a niche there, and nobody's actually doing it. Everyone else appears to me, in some way or other, seems to be appeasing a vested interest, usually trying not to get in trouble with their publisher, or trying not to get their mates in the car industry offside, or both. Okay? So... Essentially, that's uh, that's how I roll, and I I just I just love it. And doing this is fantastic for me because it combines my passion for cars with my uh, newfound passion for broadcast. And I've had this sort of infatuation with cameras and you know production type stuff, you know, audio visual production stuff for ages, and you know pressing various buttons and things of that nature. So you know th- th- that's basically how I did it, but. I would suggest if you wanted to do something like that today, if anybody wants to become a motoring journalist, the easiest thing to do is just start a blog and a YouTube channel and have an opinion in an informed way. You know, say what you really think, develop an audience, and once you've done that, you've got power, okay? Because audience equals power. Look at Rupert Murdoch, look at every other media baron. Eyeballs equals power, equals money, ultimately. So that's what I'd suggest you do. Just uh, get some basic training. It helps to be literate. It helps to be able to talk in a fairly uninhibited way on a camera, and it helps to know how all the tech stuff works. But, you know, most people could do that. It's not as hard as it seems. All you need to do is have the passion for it because it's a pretty hard slog, actually, setting all this stuff up and doing all of this stuff. That's hard, okay? What's not hard is picking up a car and driving it for a week. That's kind of easy, but that's actually a fairly small proportion of the overall job if you want to be successful at this. So anyway, Aidan McAuliffe now says, Hey, John, was considering purchasing a Ford FG Falcon as it is cheap and I'm on my P-plates. Would you recommend something else if not that? Look, if you like that sort of car, Aidan, then fair enough. Just bear in mind... and. They did a pretty good job on the Falcon in terms of its crashworthiness. It's not a bad drive. It's reasonably reliable. Ford's not the best at customer support, but plenty of independent mechanics know how to work on the local product. So, you know, you might not need too much support for the product. One thing I would say on your P's is get that driver training aid. If you're in Australia, sounds like you are, you're talking about a Falcon, steersafely.com.au. My mate Stuart Nichols, who's starting up his own thing after uh, several years, many years in the driver training industry and uh, getting back up to operational capability after COVID-19, steersafely.com.au. And the reason I'm saying that, Aiden, is because you don't know what you don't know when you're on your P's, mate. So it's very easy to... Uh, understand intellectually that there is a limit of the control envelope out here somewhere but you need a great deal of experience to know where that limit is and that means in challenging conditions when it rains and you're suddenly driving on a piece of road where some truck has I don't know, drop some diesel or all of a sudden you're going around a bend and the road is slippery for Christ knows what reason, all of a sudden you're way over the other side of this boundary, okay, and nothing makes sense in that situation. So, 
what I'd suggest is that advanced driver training can help you right? It can really help you. And your mum and your dad, they want to see you come home in your Falcon. Every time you go out, they'll be sitting there thinking, Jesus, I hope he comes home. Okay. So do a course like that, mate, get the special software update. Okay. And then you will know the value of putting both hands on the wheel at nine and three. And then if the car does start to slide, you will know that you need to look where to go. And you will know that if something steps out in front of you or hops out in front of you as it's want to do in Australia, you will know not to look at it because target fixation is a killer. You'll know to look at the escape route and then your hands will just, because they're in the right place, indexed at nine and three, they'll just point the car where you want it to go. And miraculously, you will survive these near-death experiences. But the software upgrade is essential, mate. So do that. FG Falcon, not a bad choice. You've got to fit it into the budget. It's not going to be the most fuel efficient car, but if you're into that local stuff, and I know a lot of people are, FG is not a bad bus, mate. So just find a good one. Make sure that you get it to a, a good independent mechanic whom you trust, who'll give you an independent health check on that car to make sure that you're not buying a, t a total lemon and then just make sure that it's not doesn't have money owing on it's not the security on someone else's loan hasn't been written off in the past and is not sort of reborn you know do all those administrative checks as well mate before you pay one red cent as a deposit so just do all that and happy steering mate so thanks for being part of the podcast this must be like being lectured by your friggin dad mate that's terrible nobody deserves that at 9:34 on a thursday evening so anyway, Keith Ibbotson now. I took uh, car, bus, two-truck, uh, ridged and Arctic test motorcycle, two-plus trailing on all 169 types of JCB. I'm glad to hear that, Keith. One day I'll understand what that means and I'll be even gladder. Josh Dixon now says, how about a local meet and greet event? Socially distanced, of course. Yeah, see, would you be in into that? Would anyone really want to take a perfectly serviceable, otherwise serviceable day out of their lives and spend it with me. Like, what's second prize? <laughs> Two days. We could do a meet and greet. I'd have to, I'd have to be, it'd have to be better than Trump's inauguration the first time, don't you think? Anyway, moving on. We'll just do another couple. That was actually very good. Um, very funny. A meet and greet with me. What's fucking second prize? Um, hey, John, thoughts? Uh, this is from uh, unpronounceable at this point. Hey, John, thoughts on the Renault Megane uh, 4RS280? Just want to know if it's the car to go for. I've owned a Renault Sport Clio, okay? And my take on everything Renault Sport is it's friggin' awesome. And I owned that Clio for five or six years. Nothing went wrong. And I didn't drive it very much at all. It was the... 2011 Australian Grand Prix limited edition chrome yellow uh, last of the manual Clios, okay? And it was a hoot in bands. It really was. So Renault Sport, respect. Not so sure about the reliability and support in Australia, but I'd suggest it's an awesome car to drive. And if you're into that, that's probably more important than anything else. If you're a Francophile who wants an awesome car to drive, then hey, yeah, 
I see where the appeal is, absolutely. I've not driven it, but I have no doubt that it would be frigging awesome. Uh, Glenn Sutton now says, Hi, John, thanks for the great advice on a wide range of discussions. Which is the better vehicle, Sorento or the Santa Fe? New models, obviously. At, right at this moment, snapshot in time, I think Sorrento is in front of Santa Fe because Santa Fe is kind of the older one and the newer one is always better. I'm a real fan of that eight-speed DCT in the current Sorrento. When the next Santa Fe lobs, which is likely to be January now, I think. They were talking about November, but I think it's going to be later than that because I haven't heard any whispers about launch coming up in just a few weeks. Have a look at the new car. We've got one here, sort of thing. Haven't heard that. So... When the new one lobs in, let's say, arbitrarily January, they're going to be the same, okay? Like, the same. The one differentiator is going to be, will Hyundai come out with a two-and-a-half-ton tow rating for Santa Fe? Because Kia managed not to do that with Sorento, and it's not a function of the DCT or the engine or any other part of the powertrain. That's all spec'd up for two-and-a-half-ton. The limitation with the Sorento is due to the tow bar, and I have that direct from the lips of the product planning dude at Kia, the head product planning dude. It's the tow bar design, right? So theoretically, Santa Fe could lob with two and a half ton tow capacity, which would make it superior, at least in that respect. And that is kind of important to many of you, I know. So at the moment, it'll be a photo finish, right? Once the new Santa Fe is in. And really, it'll come down to personal preference and aesthetics. And I guess... Kia's seven-year warranty will get some additional people across the line. In my view, they both should sell in greater volumes, right? In other words, Sorrento should sell in greater volumes and Santa Fe should sell in greater volumes as well. So I don't know why more people don't buy them. Adam Milvard now says, Hi, John, I know your, thought, uh, I know your thoughts on the Mitsubishi uh, plug-in hybrid EV as a vehicle. Do you have any knowledge of their last few years' reliability? I've never had a complaint about the Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid EV from a reliability point of view. And I'm actually fortuitously, serendipitously, driving the current one now. And what I know about the current one is that it's actually got a Bilstein suspension upgrade. And this is a result of that being available in Europe and their product planning department going, looking over there in Europe and going, gee, that Bilstein suspension upgrade's uh, worthwhile. Can we have that? And then Mitsubishi Central had some negotiation with them and they said, yeah, sure, go for it, dude. So the new one is much better dynamically than the current one has been for some time. The GSR's okay, you know, it's, uh, it's fairly well equipped, although as a platform, I would have to say it's fairly old now also. So there's that to weigh up. And maybe they'll have a new one, but uh, the pace of change of Mitsubishi platforms is fairly slow. And uh, maybe that'll improve now that they're hooked up with Renault Nissan, but I'm not holding my breath on that because I actually think Mitsubishi does better work than Renault or Nissan, particularly Nissan. So there's that. One final one now. Who will it be? Unless it's a complete dud, and then we'll have to go until we get a good one. Darren Turner. At least he's using his real name. So it's looking good at the outset, isn't it? Darren Turner says, I've said it before, John, this is a great platform. Much of your rambling makes sense. Thank you, I think. I think that's called a backhanded compliment, dude. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Darren. I will. Now, we'll go until we get a question that I can answer. And uh, I feel bad about ending on an upbeat note. It's like that was a Dorothy Dixon or something. James Dixon, another real name, says, Hey, John. 
What would be your thoughts on our older 90s Commodores? Do you think reliability stacks up for the older models? Look, when you're talking about a 1990s Commodore, you're talking about a car that's, let's call it, a quarter of a century old. That's about 90 in human years. Okay, so something's going to go wrong. So, look, 1990s Commodore, there were plenty of good ones. There were plenty of good Atmo V8s, right? There's nothing wrong with that as a platform for a project car, right? You could spend, I don't know, a small amount on the base vehicle and then spend 10 grand, 15 grand, whatever, on getting it right, you know, upgrading this and that. And I'm not talking about turning it into a street machine cover car. I'm talking about redoing the suspension, getting the engine right, you know, engine transmission, driveline, all of that stuff. And you'd have a pretty good car and they were quite crash worthy as well so they won't have any advanced safety features you know autonomous emergency braking and things of that nature but they actually crash okay and as project cars go there's plenty of joints who will accept wheelbarrow loads of hundred dollar bills from you to make cars like that better so yeah stamp of approval if that's the kind of thing you want now i got to go because my voice is killing me we've been doing this for quite some time now and I really do uh, thank you sincerely from the bottom of my heart that you have given up this valuable time to be with me here in the chat and part of the conversation, even if only on the other end of the glass, vicariously enjoying the show. I really do sincerely thank you for your uh, participation. I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Even if you've been shouting your outrage at me the whole time, if that if that is what absolutely lights you up, then hey, I'm glad to have been of service. And hey, if you liked it as well, pff, that's okay too. And I'll be back here. I'm going to do live streams throughout the week just to get more content out there. But this Q&A session is absolutely locked in, barring a state of emergency for Thursday nights, Sydney time at 8.30. Thank you very much for your company. I'm going to go and have something to drink now that will ease my voice and send me off to, you know, oblivion for a few hours so that I can get up and do this all again tomorrow. So thanks a lot. I'll check you later.